When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. Our guest today is the model, writer, entrepreneur, Emily Radikowski, who has gained power, fame, and money from the way she looks. But she has now written a new book of essays called My Body, which explores the way her beauty and image has been bought and sold and the advantages it has brought her. In the book, she writes to try and understand herself, her career, and where her self-worth has come from as a woman. It's a book that many of us will read and have strong opinions about, but the conversation it prompts about power, fame, and money, and the way so much of this is defined by our patriarchal society, are long overdue. You might hear her dog Columbo in the background and the busy New York streets outside her window. I hope you enjoy this conversation. One second. Sorry, I'm just, my giant dog is here and I'm trying to make sure that he's quiet. It's great to hear a big dog on the pod. (laughs) That's all right. Yeah, he's a big boy. Um, I love it. What's your dog's name? Columbo. I'm so sorry. It's no, I love it. This is also, isn't it? This is real life. It's also something that the pandemic has kind of exposed. Now everyone is like, this is it. Like, well, you might like, have the, the, baby, the baby crying soon. So watch out. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. <laughs> um, well, to start off, you are, you know, a woman known for your beauty. We're on a podcast, which is all about listening to the voice and reading a book is also about immersing oneself in someone else's mind. Um, I think it's an apt uh, way to talk to you about your book. But I'm wondering what it was like to start writing and what was the moment that you knew there was something in you that had to get onto the page? I, it was, you know, I've always been an avid reader and I guess in some ways that was both a blessing and a curse, right? I was always felt like I could never write like the writers I admired. So I didn't write a lot. I was one of those kids who would, you know, get a diary, write two entries, reread them and be like, oh my God, those are so embarrassing. I'm never going to show them to anyone else. And I guess in the last four years, I started to just have all these ideas and moments that felt really 
vivid to me. And, you know, I talked to them, talk about them with friends, but it never felt like I was organized enough. And writing became a way to organize the ideas and the thoughts. I hear sort of like a voice writing for me and I'll open my notes app and that's how a lot of these essays start. Well, I think that's interesting too. Like the idea of an essay is to have an argument with oneself and the best essays start, I think, without knowing where they're going to end up. And I feel the book is not tied up. It's, there aren't answers necessarily. But what were some of the questions that you sat down with first that you just had to scratch away at? Yeah, definitely that's how these essays started for me was about asking questions. It's cool that you intuited that. A lot of it was about marrying my intellectual political ideas with the way I felt about things. You know, we live in a day and age where our feelings and our political beliefs are often tied very closely together. We use our political beliefs to sort of protect our identity or to, you know, to affirm our identity and what we want to believe. I was interested in exploring what those were. When have you felt there has been a disconnect between the things you felt inside and the way the world viewed you. I mean, I I could say that the whole book is about that Mm -hmm. idea, right? Is there one particular moment that where you felt, I need to work out this dissonance between uh, what I'm feeling on the inside and what the world is saying about me? It wasn't so much about what the world was saying about me. It was more that there were contradictions in the way that I responded emotionally to my industry and to my own body and to my self-worth that were different than the sort of empowerment choice feminism that I was preaching. And that was what sort of was the, the kind of like needle that I found in the haystack and started to like, I don't know if it was weaving or sort of like unraveling um, that I was doing, but one that's what was the initial sort of thing. Well, you talk about the choice feminism. Can you expand a bit upon that? And I know it was in reaction to the Blurred Lines video. That idea of choice feminism is really interesting and to just kind of define it or how you define it for yourself and maybe Mm -hmm. how now you define feminism in a new way. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think it actually, the choice feminism argument started for me far before Blurred Lines. It started for me really when I hit puberty and I was experiencing a lot of shaming, like at my middle school and just from adults around me about the way I presented my body and being told that I should like cover up and that it was inappropriate. And that made me angry and pissed me off because, of course, on the flip side, I also had all this attention I was receiving and it felt really good. And I was like tired of of feeling ashamed. And I think that sort of was the initial feeling around my political beliefs was like, don't tell me what to do. Um, And, you know, then with Blurred Lines, obviously, and just my career really in general, I had this feeling of like, look, I'm a living testament to how women can succeed in our culture by capitalizing on her image and her body. So like, you can't tell me that that's not empowerment or whatever. That word gets 
overused and misused a lot, but certainly I had gained power. I was famous. I'd made much more money than I had ever anticipated. And my attitude was sort of like, get off my back. Feminism is about choice. And if I want to get, get naked and dance around and, you know, work the system as it is, then who's to tell me that that's not feminism? And as I got older, you know, I started to have to reckon with sort of the limitations to the power that can come with being objectified and objectifying yourself. Um, And that is what this book is about. Feminism now for me, as as a lot of different people have sort of asked me, like, how do you define feminism now? And I I actually don't know. I don't know the answer. (laughs) Where I am with feminism is that I'm interested in investigating and asking questions more than I am in, you know, making grand statements about what feminism is and like what it looks like, because I don't know if I can spell it out. Um, I'm not sure like what I would point to and say, okay, that's a perfect example of feminism. I mean, I do think that being able to write a book about your experiences as a woman is empowering in a way that I've never experienced and it feels very close to some type of feminism. Are there Um, any thinkers that you have leaned upon to help you grapple with these issues yourself? And I love Rebecca Solnit. I like Roxane Gay. I love Lacey Johnson, uh, Carmen Maria Machado through her fiction and short stories, but also through her nonfiction um, are asking the same questions and, you know, it's an investigation. It's not, it's about starting conversations more than it is about having answers. I love all the writers you've mentioned. Thank uh, you. This book particularly reminds me of uh, Jennifer Egan's Look at Me. Mm-hmm. I love Jennifer yeah. Egan. So amazing. And some of those essays from the Goon Squad, um, I thought, oh my gosh, Emily, maybe she'll write fiction next. Um, I think I'll have to. Yes. (laughs) Just because Uh, it's exhausting to, you know, talk about your personal experiences in such a a scrutinized way. And I think fiction can be a, a much better outlet. But I also think that this book had to be written as nonfiction, you know, about my experiences because who I am is so a part of why the book is, I think, impactful or hopefully impactful. I want to talk about money and power Mm -hmm. because, (laughs) oh, I mean, I want more of both, please. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea that that can come particularly for women through beauty and exposure. When was the moment that you decided to start your own business and take back control and Walk us through that process. You know, I had done a couple licensing deals, which basically means that I let a company use my likeness and image and my social channels to sell a product and I am paid a flat fee and then receive a percentage of the profits and it's usually pretty small. It's like 5%. And it was the first time that I actually, it's a, it's a really good deal though, um, especially as a model, you, you know, even though 5% sounds very small, it's like you don't have to deal with production and blah, blah, blah. But I was getting these checks that were like pretty substantial and realizing, oh my God, if I'm making, if that's 4% of what these people are making, then wow. Um, 
maybe I should get on the other side of this. And, you know, I have a complicated relationship to, to being a boss and having a business. I wanted to have control and it brought me joy to be making money myself rather than working for someone else. And that is just the truth. In the book, you speak really eloquently about wanting to have money for your own freedom and that coming as an idea really early to you, even as a child, absorbing the stresses in a household. And I think we can all relate to that. Um, how has the financial freedom, how has that journey been for you? And then you speak really clearly about there's a limit to that freedom if you're not in control. Yeah. Well, I, first of all, the main thing, I don't know if you read Martin Hagelin's This Life, but one of the things I loved about that is that, you know, ultimately like the, the, the ultimate freedom is time. And that is actually the thing beyond, I mean, you know, it's through money and through capital that I was able to have time to write this book. <laughs> and that is like a really, I don't know that, that to me, like when people ask me, you know, would you tell a young girl to model or not? I read this book. Like, what would you, what advice would you give? I'm like, well, of course I would like never tell a young girl she shouldn't model because it allowed me the time <laughs> to write this book because I was making money in a way that didn't mean that I had to clock into a nine to five, five days a week. And that is such a tremendous gift. So I don't know. I mean, I think that that, well, the truth is, is that I don't, I have, all kinds of thoughts about capitalism and how it impacts um, feminism. But ultimately, yeah, I wanted the freedom that money could bring me and it has brought me above all else time. I want to talk a lot about your mom. We can all identify with how our mothers internalize their own beauty or the worth mm -hmm. of beauty or how they have used their beauty to you know, marry our fathers or mm -hmm. gain attention. Yeah. I myself felt my mom was very prized for her beauty and that it took a while for me to understand that to develop the mind was a huge part of feeling very self-sufficient. Like I would mm -hmm. always have something to lean on that had nothing to do with looks, but. Yeah. So my mom came from a family that really stressed that beauty was not something that you should be proud of. It almost was something that she felt, I think maybe embarrassed by within her family unit. And she had a complicated relationship to it because, you know, she was also the homecoming queen and she was an academic, but was beautiful and had kind of complicated relationships to her colleagues and other women. And when she had me, I think she really didn't want me to experience the same kind of shame that she felt around her beauty. So her sort of idea was to really encourage me to embrace my beauty and to sort of like be smart about what it could allow me, what it could bring me. I had an ex-boyfriend's mom who said to me once that her daughter, if she had had a daughter, she only had one son. If she had had a daughter, she would have, 
you know, definitely talked to her about weight and made sure that she stayed thin. And my initial reaction was absolute horror because, well, you wouldn't do that with your son. You haven't. But then I realized that, like, she, it was her way of thinking she would protect her daughter because ultimately having a thin daughter would mean that her daughter might have a better life. And I think that that was true for my mom in some ways. And she wanted me to explore the options that came with, you know, having a commodifiable look. As young women, we do get these mixed messages. And you mentioned it earlier that uh, women are so prized for their beauty. And as adolescent girls, isn't it all we want is to emulate the people we think are great, Britney Spears, or we get messages that that is the way to be validated. And yet on the other side, we have men or someone like our dad trying to protect us by, in a way, shaming us by Mm -hmm. not wearing something revealing out. And it's Mm -hmm. their worry kind of being projected onto us too. Mm -hmm. How do you think grappling with those two messages manifest itself in your own self-confidence or idea of how to be a woman? I think that, you know, like it made me feel extremely defiant and, you know, angry at the sort of fact that I was asked to adjust all the time, that young women and women in general are asked to adjust to a culture that both, you know, rewards and punishes us for, for being sexually attractive or being beautiful. To speak to anger, it's a huge theme in the book. And Mm -hmm. uh, something I loved that you went there is about this idea that as women, we often get sad before we locate the anger. Yes. And, And there are instances where things happen to you where it took years to actually realize that you were really angry about what had happened to you. Can you draw upon kind of one or two of those examples? And I think it might just help women to hear that you also went through this. Yeah. I mean, there's so many examples of that. I would say that in general, I didn't really um, let myself feel angry about pretty much anything in my life. I mean, I could feel rage pop up in different moments. Um, but I never, I felt what I felt was shame. And, you know, it took me like, I don't know, three years ago, maybe when I started writing this to really understand that shame was separate from guilt. To me, it seemed like when I thought of shame, I thought of a kid in a corner with a dunce cap on because he had or she had done something wrong. And often underneath shame is, you know, a bunch of things, but anger. One of the ways that you can work through shame is by embracing that anger. You talk about therapy in the book and I feel like that's such a powerful moment for so many of us when we start to have help unpacking Mm -hmm. uh, particularly where that anger resides and what we were really angry about. What was that experience like for you going to therapy for the first time? I was really um, of two minds about writing about therapy because I didn't want the book to at all feel like it was a certain type of book. I was like all about self-healing and whatever. Um, but there are moments that I decided to include experiences in therapy, like brief moments, because they felt so impactful. Um, you know, 
For example, there's an essay about my first boyfriend that I had when I was 14, 15. And that was a relationship that I just, you know, people would talk about first loves and I would just feel really embarrassed because my first love had been, you know, um, not a positive experience. And I felt like it was my fault and issue. And it wasn't until I, you know, sort of had someone to say to me, why don't you just take a different look at it for a second? Why don't you just like have a little bit more empathy for your younger self and just look at it from with a different perspective, but with a different set of eyes. And that um, was really helpful. And it's like sort of like once you've lifted the veil or, you know, um, the expression I like to use is like there was like a fogged glass door and I sort of stopped like wiped away the fog and said, okay, what, like, let's look at this from a larger perspective than just feeling humiliated or like something was wrong with me that I was able to start to really understand the complexity behind these situations. And also why as young women, we feel it's hard to locate the word no Mm -hmm. in so many instances. Like I think we feel that there will be consequences for our no. I'm sure all throughout your career, when you were in an uncomfortable situation, there was a consequence for you saying, no, this does not feel good. Yeah. I mean, modeling agencies, 19, 17 year old girls that, you know, they're replaceable and that really your job is to be as agreeable as possible because their interest isn't in protecting the girls. It's an industry they're interested in maintaining clients and making sure that the clients are happy. And that means that if the client asks you to do something that maybe isn't what you want, like it doesn't matter. You need to say yes because you're working for them. I use the term mannequin, which is the French word for model. Um, like It feels very telling to me <laughs> because you do feel like a mannequin. Also that the idea that models aren't meant to have a voice. So... Mm-hmm saying no or this isn't right for me kind of isn't like you said part of the equation yeah yeah Um, it's not an option I want to talk about the woozies because Mm -hmm. I loved this part of the book and I think it connects to this feeling like we can't say no or locate our anger can you Mm -hmm. tell us what the woozies are how they felt for you and some of the coping mechanisms you've learned um, through the process of growing up, becoming a you know more mature woman, how you help soothe yourself. Yeah, so the woozies, um, when I was a little girl, I, I basically had like what I think is anxiety or depression. And I would say to my mom, like the woozies, and it was, I described it as being sad and feeling a little carsick. And I can remember the feeling of laying in bed and just thinking like, oh, I can't get comfortable. Like my mind was racing and was quite young. That piece is about learning to take care of yourself, I think, in a lot of ways. And it was it was really a hard lesson, one that I'm still working on to learn to be able to self-soothe and not look to other people to sort of live in pain with me or in my hurt and instead really feel feelings, not be afraid of them, while also 
being gentle with yourself. It just was nothing. It wasn't even something I'd ever thought about as a as a young girl. I don't have a hack. I think the more you sort of become aware of that as even an option, the more you you start to execute it and you can take care of yourself and self-soothe. To me, it feels like having read your book that this strength, this muscle that you're developing in your writing is a way to find uh, solace and to dive into your own strength. Absolutely. The last essay in the book is called Releases. And it's, you know, so much of the book is about control, but there are also experiences where, and I think the reality of life and the only way you can heal is by accepting that you just can't control everything. And, you know, writing for me was a way to, I guess, have control over my own narrative. And the experience of writing is extremely cathartic. That being said, you know, publishing the book now, it does feel it's complicated. I mean, I have, it's not out yet, but um, like there's been media leaks about different parts of it. And it's scary because I realize just even when you write, you know, as nuanced as a of a night of a piece as you can, there there's of a, a work of art or ideas. There's still ways that it's going to be twisted and um, turned to something it's not. And I think that that's also part of being okay <laughs> is like letting go of control and and knowing that you have done everything you could in your power, and then letting it just sort of be released and live out in the world. In your own words, what is this book about for you? And I'm wondering if that's changed over uh, the period of having the idea to write it through that process and now it being about to be out in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think for me it was, you know, about organizing my thoughts and ideas and understanding um the way that I felt and and intellectualized a lot of things around being a woman and a model. And now I hope that it starts conversations. <laughs> I mean, that's really all I want for this book, particularly amongst women. That's that are those are my those are my goals. I love too that you acknowledge that it's okay to change. Isn't it the best thing as a human to evolve and have ideas and reflect back and be kind to yourself, but go, this is all part of A, growing up and having experiences. That's something I really took away from it, kind of an example of encouraging other young girls and women to go, it's okay to change your mind about something you've done or said. This is part of growing. Absolutely. I mean, I really believe in change. I really believe in evolution of ideas of people. And I've, I'm so grateful for it. I don't know what if life would be worth living if that wasn't true. Um, And, you know, there's been moments where I've, I've thought about the permanence of a book. And, you know, it's this thing that like, it lives on forever as a physical, um, object in the world. And uh, that can be really scary (laughs) because I'm like, well, what about when things change? But I also like the idea of maybe in 10 years or 15 years, I'll think, yeah, all those things I said in that book or the ideas I had, I actually now disagree with or have new thoughts and ideas about them. 
I love that too. Um, my last question, what lights you up? Well, my female friends, <laughs> I think relationships with women, um, that is something that just, um, I don't know what I would do without. Um, my son, he's seven months old. My dog, Columbo, who we all got to know on this podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, again, I think change and the idea that human beings can evolve and um, that we can even evolve as a whole is really exciting. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this conversation with Emily Radikowski. Be sure to tune in in two weeks for my literary hero, Anne Patchett. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rudofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.